Hello and welcome to the Volunteer Firefighter Podcast, where we listen into a group of rural firefighters as they give their opinions on the challenges they face both on and off the fireground. We release a new episode every week, so please hit that subscribe button, leave us a rating, and share this with your fire family and friends. Now on to this week's episode, where as always, we ask the question, are you DTFF? Three, two... Listen, I'm on the phone, so they don't... <laughs> One. <laughs> Hi, Carl. Hi, Spence. How are you? Fantastic, how are you? Good, good. Good. Do you know what we're talking about today? We're going to talk about RIT today. Today, we're going to be talking about RIT. Yeah, with Ash and Carl and Scott via the telephone. Telephonic. Oh, yeah. Yep. We're going to talk about RIT today, and RIT, for those of you who don't know, stands for Rapid Intervention Team. A Rapid Intervention Team are the group of firefighters that are trained, equipped, and prepared to rescue any firefighters that are in need of help on a fireground. Absolutely. Normally, <clears throat> I think um, we were just actually talking about this, and something that the training team was discussing quite recently is whether or not due to the fact that um, we, on bigger calls, have a lot of members that are already um, already busy on scene, already having jobs and things to do on scene, whether it was a good idea to uh, place a call with neighbouring departments to bring them in as a designated rapid intervention team. Uh, so let's, let's, start, let's start with the, the bonuses of that. Let's start with that specifically because I think it was something we started talking about the other day which maybe we could break into a little bit more. Okay. Ash, you want to start? Yeah, like I say, we uh, we did start to discuss the the regional RIT team, if you will, where us and another department or so uh, would train with one another, be familiar with one another's RIT pack, RIT gear. Um, I think the bonus of that, like you said, we have so many members on scene that are tied up, that are busy doing something. Um, and we are a volunteer department, so our numbers are in some days limited. So having that availability where if there's a structure fire, we can activate that assistance, uh, I, I think is a, a big key key point for us where we get the extra help we know is coming not right away but I mean they're 20 minutes down the road that's not fast enough but it's it's better than what we have sometimes I mean it could potentially be <clears throat> just fine with <clears throat> if we placed the call when we knew we got it and they were on their way like it's a big fire we know it's a big building we know it's going to mm -hmm. be an issue if we're not directly calling for just straight mutual aid bring a truck it's more can you bring three guys up, keep them ready and posted so they're fresh mm -hmm. um, and just ready to go, then I think that might be, uh, I think 20 minutes may be valid. By the time we get on scene and, and get things going through, it, it may be something we need to do. Uh, Scott, do you have uh, you have something to bring to that? Um, I guess I was the one that broached this subject a couple of weeks ago. Was it last week? When did I bring this up? I think it was uh, last week. Last week, maybe, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I talked to a few of the guys, um, mainly because I was sitting here in my hotel room um, thinking about stuff. And, uh, yeah, some of the departments around the North American area, North American area, <laughs> around, the, like, maybe the U.S. and stuff, they seem to have regional writ teams. And uh, it's some, what it seems like, they get activated for any structure fire. So... It's like an it's like an instant activation. It's not a it's not a wait. It's not a let the officer make the call. It's like literally, if a structure fire gets turned in, it's like our department goes, and the RIT team from whatever department we're using, say say the department closest to us that we're referring to, it would um, be immediately sort of um, paged out at the same time. And I think what that does is that, that cuts down on that time loss. Um, and that would allow for that, that quicker transition for all the benefits that Ash listed for the freshness and, and such. Um, it would mean that we'd have to train regularly together. Mm -hmm. like, or, you know, 
quarterly sort of thing, which is more than we train writ right now. Like right, right now, we may be training writ, writ twice a year, I'm thinking, like full real writ practice. Yeah, I mean, we constantly train writ practice. Sorry, we constantly train writ during regular sessions, but an actual writ practice we do maybe twice a year. A full writ scenario. Yeah, specifically. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. yeah. Um, so that was my thoughts, because... Like we were saying, it's not, um, it's not something that's often, I mean, it's thought about, but quite often our resources are being used on the fire ground and the writ is kind of like, oh yeah, those guys, they can, you know, yeah, you two will be okay to be writ, but maybe their mind's not in it or maybe they're not the best for the job. Whereas this way it was more, we train like a, a crew, you know, 10 guys, for both departments and we kind of share the load so if they have a if they have a structure fire we go down there and vice versa and it's only like maybe four guys go mm-hmm. in like an, even if they go in like a bush truck or an officer's truck they don't need to necessarily take a pumper with them because you don't need the pumper you may just need the, the manpower yeah because if it was a pumper call then it would be a mutual aid call yeah so it would be different than a regular mutual aid call that would be I don't know I don't know how we'd even there'd be ways to begin that conversation. How do we do it? How do we set it up? But it was just a thought. Right. I quite like yeah. it as an idea. I think um, I think for rural departments, using again, getting into that um, frame of mind of knowing that these people are there. Um, and I think we talked about this a little bit the other week as well when we were talking about other departments and mutual aid. Um, having people that are available to us is, is great. Mm-hmm. We don't train with them as often as maybe we should. And maybe this is another good opportunity to get into that kind of training, regardless of whether or not it's specifically for RIT or not. I think maybe we should be doing it a bit more anyway. And if this is another good flow into that. It just opens the door. Yeah. yeah. Even right. cross-training with other departments. <clears throat> Absolutely. Yeah, nothing bad can come out of that. Yep. Open up, up communication with other departments and other agencies like we talked about last week. Yeah. I think the the questions that I have would be when it comes to equipment um, and not not training specifically for individuals, but equipment. Now, is is our equipment the same as theirs? Do they do we have a mutual air pack uh, for RIT that we, we use? Obviously, all the, the connections are interchangeable on the RIT pack itself. But when they come up and they bring in their own gear, do we have gear for them? You know, how, how do you see that working? Spence, I'll throw it over to you. Yeah, that's something that's going to have to be talked about once the regional team gets fleshed out a little bit more. Um, it could be that the team comes up just with themselves with manpower and utilizes our own RID equipment. Um, there's benefits to that, or they bring their own. Um, but the key would be for everybody to be familiar with the tools and equipment that they're going to be using, whether it's their own or whether it's ours. That's where the cross-training comes in. Yeah. <clears throat> no, it makes sense. Yeah. With the uh, with the universal rate connector, that really doesn't matter um, beyond a regulator malfunction, and then we're gonna have to be all on board with the same equipment or mm-hmm. compatible equipment. Right. Yeah. We're MSA. They may be Scott. May interfere. Or right. Drive smoothly. Right. 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 So yeah, really, that would be the only. The big issue, and I guess obviously we get in a position where we're training yeah. for that anyway, and you know it's another one of those those things. Yeah, so, what what was the the initial thought process then, Scott? Was this just through you 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 read this, you seen this? Where did you get the idea from? Uh, I think it was sitting or I was walking or something. I was thinking about our practices and not our practices, like training, I mean, our practices in general and fire calls and some of the stuff that we're often lacking. And I noticed when I was thinking that sometimes we don't have the writ um, established as quickly or sometimes the emphasis isn't put on writ. And then I started thinking, well, what if there was an actual, that was like the, pers- the, the crew's whole job, but how do you get a crew that's their whole job. So basically, like almost have them uh, take 
do that. So they started thinking, well, what if what if the mutual aid guys came and they're they're not part of the fire, right? So they don't come in thinking they're fighting the fire. They're coming in knowing what their role is going to be. They're not coming in thinking like we always, you know, we drive up in you know, one and two, and everybody wants to be the the nozzle operator and get in there, right? Yeah. Um, but if your job when you show up is to be the writ crew, you're the writ crew, and if that's your mindset coming to the scene, um, I think that's how that would work better. And so then I started doing some research while I was sitting here um, on the internet, and there was a few, there were several departments um, in rural areas that have what they call a regional writ crew. Um, I think Milwaukee County was the one I was reading most about, and they have a, they basically cross train a number of other departments, and then they gather together when there's a structure fire and they they provide red teams that's a i really like the idea i think it's great so in, we'll, we'll kind of move away just from the idea of of the the mutual aid writ team right now and we'll concentrate more on on writ and the the practices and the best practices of writ let's let's talk a little bit more about that um so i'm completely new and I would like to know details on, I'm a new firefighter, explain RIT to me, the process initially there, Ash. Say you're, you're arriving on scene and you're mm-hmm. part of this RIT crew, mm-hmm. um, what would be the process that you would go through when team. you first arrive on the scene? Uh, so if you're on the RIT team, uh, you arrive on scene, um, you definitely want to get your staging area set. You want to get all of your tools laid out. You want to get all like your, your uh, RIT pack. Everything that you're going to require if there is a RIT. Uh, if there's a call for RIT on the fire ground, you want to make sure you have all that laid down. Um, you want to be... The RIT crew can be mobile on the fire ground. They don't just have to sit uh, knowing where everything is, having ears open, um, kind of following the action, knowing where your team is is super key as well. Uh, so... Um, you can, I, I believe we've, we practice where the RIT team can be semi-utilized. They don't just have to stand there. I mean, we don't have a large department where the RIT team just sits on the tarp and waits for the call. Uh, they, they can be utilized to help throw a ladder. You just can't get active fighting a fire. That's the biggest thing. Is you don't want to have a RIT guy in a mask on air, like, inside the doorway. I mean, he's already being utilized for something. Um... Yeah, I'd start with that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if <clears throat> it would be a massive detriment if mm-hmm. you're wandering around, you got your air mask on, and you're the you're the Rick guy, and you get that call, you're already twenty percent, ten percent through your tank. You, you have need no to be idea how long you're gonna be in there. And ready and rested. Yeah. Fresh. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So it's not big tasks. You can help with small things, but. The idea for RIT is this person is going in to save somebody's life. Do you want a guy that's bagged that's because they've been working their ass off for the past 20 minutes? Or do you want somebody that's fresh that's going to go in there with a clear mind, fresh, full pack, and ready to help? And focused on and that. focused, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Ideally, what you want for from a RIT is um, they can do anything on the fire ground that can be immediately dropped. Mm-hmm. Um, scene lighting is a perfect example um, but yeah you don't want somebody on a nozzle to be dedicated as writ mm-hmm. because who knows where they've gone firefighting may not yeah. not necessarily ready to do to do the writ um, the other thing that you want is the mobility of the writ um, ideally they're going to be doing their size up of, of said structure or wherever you happen to be um, and they're going to be looking for points of access and egress. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're going to be listening and looking for signs of um, the actual firefighters that are inside our IDLH environment um, so that they sort of track where they're going. Um, if the Mayday calls comes in, um, most times probably the fastest course of action won't be to follow the hose line that the, let's say, attack team mm-hmm. went on. Um, it could be a door that, that they don't even know about yet, right? They've been working the fire and um, all of a sudden something happens. They call their mayday just into the next room could be the front door of the building, right? And uh, the writ team should do their 360 and find out where that is in, lo- in relation to where 
their firefighters that they may be ridding mm-hmm. are. Makes sense. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, and you were, like you were saying, trying to track the guys inside um, is one of the key the key points there. I'm figuring out where, if you are going in, where you're going in and where's best to go in, which is safe for everyone. Mm-hmm. At the, you know, at the, the same time as being as quick as possible to get in there and, and deal with that. Exactly. Um, I guess that also kind of incorporates a little bit there where we're talking about pre-plan, right? So the, the pre-plan guy, if it was be, for example, a commercial building, um, any, um, any material that you could get hold of, the RIT team could be going through uh, building plans, you know, not necessarily that you need to be a construction guy, but even a basic floor plan um, while you're wandering around outside with that in your hand, mm-hmm. knowing where they went in, and again, back to communication is key every day on the fire ground. Communication is key. If they're talking out and you're listening on the other end, then you've you've got something for that too. Mm. Scott, do you want to weigh in? Yeah, sir. Um, <laughs> yeah, further to the point of the tarp, the red tarp, um, waiting on the red tarp. I don't, you know, it's not... Not, not only is it not imperative that they wait on the red tarp, like further to what Ash and Spencer were saying, I think it's important that they don't wait on the tarp. I think it's important that they do that 360 and they're constantly moving around the, the structure um, because they, they need to know what the fire is doing, how it's progressing, um, what are the potential hazards, because the hazards are going to change by the minute as a fire burns. Um, you know, what was once a... a a structurally intact roof can now be not a structurally intact roof, or maybe there's a you know a basement and that's not structurally sound anymore, or maybe now there's a wall starting to sag. So I, I think that they need to be mobile, um, and I know a lot of departments, and I know for a while we were talking about you know stand by the red tarp, um, whereas I think the red tarp is should be more of a staging area for tools that people don't touch not a staging area for the team to stand by as long as uh, the either the IC or the safety officer knows where the red team is when they can get be activated but I mean they'll have a radio on them as well so that's my two cents on that <clears throat> Spence the red tarps also a staging area for the rest of the red team once the mayday gets called everybody that's non-essential falls back to a red role and that tarp, that writ tarp, is going to be the staging area for that larger operation. Because the, the designated writ team um, is just the first part of the writ team that's going to happen, right? It's um, going to be the, the, the quick response um, because it's going to take a lot of guys, typically, to rescue any kind of downed firefighter. Um, yeah, so they're like the first <laughs> designated writ team would be like the recon team. Right, right. Thanks, Scott. <laughs> so they're, they're the first people in the door, but not necessarily the people that are going to be in there dealing with it for the majority of the time. Because we all know if you're in that kind of a situation, you know, a lot of us, again, we've had this conversation, we will all try and do the thing that is probably the worst for us because we're those kind of people. We'll try and save ourselves until the last moment. And at the last moment now, Everyone's got to try and work extra hard to try and get in and get us. Maybe we're in a really bad spot. And obviously, the stuff we do daily, if we've called Mayday, we're in a pretty bad spot. Yeah. yeah. At that point, they are the first guys in. Mm-hmm. Ash? I just wanted to really bring it back. You said to a fresh firefighter, Scott said something key there. So if you're coming on scene, you're a fresh firefighter, and you look, oh man, there's all these amazing tools laid out. Because how many times has an officer yelled out to you, go and grab a Halligan? So you run back and you go to grab it. Well, shit, I'm, there's fucking one laid out right here. I'll just grab it. If it's on the writ tarp, it stays on the writ tarp. Okay. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's it seems like it's something that doesn't need to be said. But if we're speaking, like you say, to a fresh firefighter that doesn't know anything about writ and you're trying to learn, if it's placed down there, the writ team takes it off in the event of a writ you don't grab it and be oh I'll just i'll just be a second and bring it back because in that second a million things can happen yeah scott you have anything else to add on that um i think some of the tools that we put on the red tarp um i think a lot of times people you know not so much with us now but i think for a while there it was like well what do you need to put on the red tarp why do we need a tarp you know all you need is a halogamar and axe but the more we 
we get into it and more we think about what we need, well, no, now we need a helicopter and axe. That's a, that's, that's a bare, bare minimum to start. Then you need your RIT bag, which is going to have your extra cylinder in it with your RIT connectors for um, transferring over the, the air to the down firefighter. Um, then you, you know, you're in that bag, you're going to need um, chalks for the doors. You're going to need possibly webbing. You might need carabiners. Um, oh. You know, various, yeah, rope. Sorry, yeah, those are the rope to tie, not only to help pull the guy out, but also to tie off. So if you lose that hose line, or if you're not following the hose line, you have a way to get back. Um, so that, and that's just a rip bag. And now, what else is on the tarp? Well, what kind of structure is it? Is it going to be heavy timber or steel? Well, then maybe we have to go look at the rescue truck and start looking at what kind of tools we might need for that. So maybe we might need spreaders, cutters, um, like all the stuff off the rescue truck. We're not gonna just going to park the rescue truck on, truck on the rip tarp. But we have to keep in mind that maybe the rescue truck should be called out and parked nearby. Mm-hmm. And then what are we, what kind of floor, what, what floor are we looking at? Like, on the second, third floor, what kind of ladders are we going to need? Um, we should be throwing ladders on any second floor fire. Um, I think our officers are agreeing to that now. From the last conversations I had, they were agreeing to that. Um, but should we have an extra roof ladder maybe on the rip tarp in case we need to either use it for access or use it for, you know, improvised stretcher mm-hmm. out of the building? So there's all sorts of tools that can go on that um, tarp, you know, including the AED, because with the uh, CPR that we do now with a down firefighter CPR. You're going to need the AD ready. Um, any other things you can think of, Spencer? Uh, extra air cylinders um, and maybe an extra mask. Yeah, I think you got most of the key points. Mm-hmm. Um, I saw one of those Paul Coombs comics uh, once upon a time and it was a RIT team member and he had a big pile of shit on his back including the kitchen sink and that just speaks to um, the fluidity of, of that situation. Mm-hmm. Anything is something that you may need in a writ situation. That's true. You, you just never can tell. It's uh, <coughs> like Barry's what ifs. You yeah. can what if it forever. So um, anything you can imagine could possibly be a writ tool. So you have to really limit, you know, really limit, but you have to sort of limit what you're going to put on a writ term. Yeah. yeah just by size up and what you think you might need well i guess it also comes back again to that communication point of once that first team's gone in they've assessed and figured out you know what this is the situation we're going to need this now guys this is now something we need to do maybe they're trapped underneath something but now we need something to lift maybe it's a car jack maybe just Mm -hmm. you can wheel a car jack in there get something out of the way and even prior to that recon team hopefully the partner of our down firefighter has called in a good mayday and uh, given some kind of good location yeah. and some kind of resources needed, right? Yeah, very, very valid point. Actually, mm-hmm. yeah, because you, actually, you're right. That would be the, the person on the back end, right? Is going to also, or it could be two people. Now is three mm-hmm. people in a RIT team going to be, you know, enough to even deal with, with those two guys? Absolutely not. You know, we're mm-hmm. going to need somebody else added mm-hmm. to that. Are two people down? Is one person caught in the mayday and he doesn't know where his buddy is? You know, like it's uh can be anything as you said right mm-hmm. kitchen sink on top of the guy's back it's everything mm-hmm. scott yeah i think the uh, one statement is that it takes uh, uh 12 12 firefighters 18 minutes to remove a down firefighter or maybe it's the other way around 18 yeah. firefighters 12 minutes no i think it's 12 firefighters <laughs> 12 rick team members 20 minutes. yeah i think that was so anyways, it's, a, it's a lot of members is to actually uh do a proper writ and i don't know if they are referring to someone who's trapped or if that's just someone who's downed so because i mean there's obviously a couple types of incidents that happen there's a medical emergency which is in our line of work it's typically the the heart attack or some sort of cardiac event where the person just collapses that's going to be a lot different than if a structural collapse happens the structural collapse happens that's where the extra tools come in right that's where we might need the chainsaw or the or the extrication tools. Um, if it's just a medical emergency, um, it's still going to take a lot of resources to move somebody from um, to remove somebody from that that structure. Um, I, I was listening to, to our one of our well, not only listening, but I, I was there for one of our former podcasts that we did when uh, um, Ash was talking about his first practice, and uh, you know he was on the RIT team, 
and uh, you know, even removing the the member, because if I remember correctly, it was one of our larger members, because we were never we're never nice to to the new guys. <laughs> so we had to, we had the larger member down in practice, and you know, it's it's going to take four to six guys to move that guy out, and that's only in a burn building. That's only ten feet into the burn building, or twenty feet in. Yeah. That's not inside a you know two story structure down a hallway over carpet. And, uh, you know, with a building on fire falling down around you. Mm-hmm. So it's going to take a lot of resources, even in the simplest writ. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, and even there, actually, just saying that, it, it called me back then just to the other things you need to take into consideration as the writ team. What are you dragging that person across? Is it carpet? You know, that's a lot tougher to pull than just a kitchen floor. Right? Sure is, yeah. You know what kind of surfaces are you dealing with? Are you going down certain corridors? Again, it's information when you're going in. Even if it's black, obviously we know that's that can be a challenge. But again, any information that you've been able to gather before uh, the scene, maybe even hopefully um, everybody's gotten out, and you can have a conversation with one of the owners that's there if they're you know lucid and okay and everything's fine, or they've just arrived on scene. Maybe that's a conversation the the uh, the rick guys could be having with the the owner of the property mm-hmm. just to get a little bit more background yeah right? and also uh the um the surface that you're on and its structural integrity mm-hmm. you still got to be sounding the floors even if you came in sounding the floors you can't trust that there's going to be structural again has that change you gotta, yeah you gotta sound the floors in sound the floors out and you can't stop doing that yeah yeah especially when you've now got not just your weight your gears weight, but you're also dragging another guy behind you. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's, you know, you know, you're, whereas when you went in, you were individuals in a line making your way towards a point on the way out. There may be three of you now trying to carry one person. Yeah. So your weight is increased dramatically. It's a so. lot more centralized load. For Absolutely. Sure. Yeah, you bet. Yeah. You got any more to add on that? You know, I think as a general overview, I, I think we really touch base on on most of it you know you got to get that tarp out you got to get you know what could be everything including that kitchen sink but you you want to get as much of the useful tools they you know lay out as possible make sure they stay there get that writ team mobile get them you know doing their 360 a really good size up um yeah anything you add to just to finish that one off there spence yeah should we talk mayday for a minute yeah let's talk mayday Mm -hmm. all right um so to activate our RIT team, um, first of all, like uh, someone alluded to earlier, um, being all alpha gung-ho types, uh, typically we're going to be waiting to call our mayday. Um, you're all of a sudden going to find yourself lost or entangled or entrapped or something. Our instinct is to try and fix it rather than to call for help. Um, now I've been teaching RID at different places for a while now and, uh, and I try to steer people away from that. I'd like to flip that and have people call for help as soon as they have the inkling that, uh, that they're in any kind of trouble, um, entrapped or lost or anything because, um, you can always call a RID team off. Uh, they probably won't be called off. They'll probably still come and help. Or check out what's going on but you can never make up that time and that's really important I'm gonna say it again you can never make up time um, if we call our mayday first like geez I don't I'm in a place where I'm not familiar I don't know where I am I don't know where I'm going rather than taking those few steps maybe 30 seconds maybe a minute that's a minute or 30 seconds that you're never going to make up. And how many breaths just happen? And how many breaths just happen because your panic level goes up because mm-hmm. whether you acknowledge it or not, your body knows that you're, you're lost. It doesn't mm-hmm. look familiar, right? So let's call that mayday early and save ourselves some time. Mm-hmm. Um, and what we're going to do over radio is call mayday, 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 really loud and clear. At that point, um, all non-essential fire ground communication stops it fall falls back to the um the mayday and the writ team also all non-emergency or non-essential fire ground activities stop so um if you are 
let's say doing lighting or um, a backup guy on a inch and a half nozzle, maybe you don't really need to be there. Uh, your partner is okay with the nozzle, something like that. Because of that 12 guys, 20 minutes thing, most of the group is going to retreat back to RIT because now that's our, our main focus. Um, our fire ground priorities, of course, are me, our other firefighters, the patients in the house, and then it goes on from there. Um, so me and my firefighter buddies are the two most important things. If one of them's in trouble, we all have to band together to start that rescue. Um, so what we're going to be doing is gathering fresh packs, fresh bottles, um, maybe having a swig of water, getting ready, getting ourselves freshened up to be the second wave of RIT, right? Um, so after we've called the Mayday, um, those two things happen, communication stops. We're not going to be calling back to base saying, hey, are those sandwiches ready to bring out? Or, um, yeah, non-essential stuff stops, right? Um, the next thing that we're going to want to do when we're calling the Mayday, the person that's in trouble, either the person that's in trouble or that person's partner, is try and give as much information to the IC and the RIT team as possible. Now there's um, acronyms of plenty. There's LUNAR, which stands for Location, Unit, Name, Assignment, Resources. Guarantee you're going to forget that, no matter how many times we say it in training. If your partner goes down with a jammer, you're not going to remember LUNAR. I'd bet. What I want to ingrain in people when I teach it is um, as much pertinent information as possible. So your location is huge. Uh, if you don't know your location, um, something as simple as I see a big picture window with a uh, plant in the middle of it. That's a location, right? Because our RIT team has been doing the 360. Oh, geez, I remember seeing a, a window with a plant. Or I see a small frosted window. Gives an indication you're in a bathroom. You know, that kind of stuff. A location doesn't have to be a physical location as much as it can be a description, right? Um, you're going to want to tell who you are. Um, we're trying to get away from using names because of people listening on radios. Uh, so an assignment is, is a really good um, thing to do, like search team one or attack team two. Uh, mayday, mayday, mayday. Um, and a brief description of what we're going to need. If it's a medical emergency, typically it's going to be fast um, with not a whole lot of resources needed, probably an, an extra air bottle, but it's going to be fast. Um, tell the RIT team, hey, a great big piece of roof just fell on our partner. We're going to need to extricate this guy. That buys us a little bit of time, um, but it's still there's still seriousness in that situation. So whatever pertinent information you can pass on is going to be good. That's the Mayday in a nutshell. Nice. Nice. Anything to add there, Scott? Um, no, I think, uh, like Spencer said, he's been teaching it for quite a while. Um, I think that uh, that location is very is, is, is one of the most essential things. But if the red team is doing a good job, they, they should have an understanding of where they are in the building. But definitely the location. I mean, obviously we have other ways to... To attract attention, we can, uh, you know, access the pass alarm immediately via the emergency button on the pass alarm to get the uh, to get the alarm sounding right away. Put it into emergency mode. That'll draw the attention of the uh, of the meeting. Uh, sorry, the meeting. The RIT crew. Um, I think there's a there's the acronym. I, I think I was talking to you guys about it. Um, the win principle. Um, the what's important now. So we. But, you know, it, it's, it works in anything we do in the fire. I mean, it's it's what I'm teaching right now down here. Um, we were saying it every day, like 20 times a day. Um, so I think, you know, when, you know, like Spencer was saying, if a big hunk of roof falls on the guy, well, what's important now? Well, what's important now is we need to start thinking about what tools we're going to need to get that roof off him. Um, even before that, what's important now is the air he's going to need because he's going to need some um, breathing uh, pro probably going to need uh, a fresh bottle brought in, a fresh cylinder brought in, and uh, get that top up happening with the red bag. Or maybe he's not. Maybe it's a, it's just a collapse after the fire is mainly out. Because you know we we know that's a lot of times when red happens is is at the end of the fire when we're in mop up phase because we've just battled the fire and uh, we put you know thousands and thousands of gallons of water on this thing 
and water weighs you know a lot. Once you put that much water on a structure that's already compromised with fire, um, the chances of it collapsing are, are much higher. And maybe it's maybe it's not an ideal leach environment anymore. Maybe it's just uh, the person's trapped in these there. But it doesn't mean you can dawdle. I mean, you, the guy gets a, uh, a heavy beam on him. You can still get to get it off him. He could have you know crush injuries. Um, he could have a severe laceration. Um, that sort of thing. So yeah, the what's important now thing, um, especially since I've you know down where I am right now, we've been beating it into people's heads down here, and uh, I'm you know I'm going to bring it back when I get back there. We're gonna I'm going to be beating it to your heads. <laughs> All right, I like it. One thing about uh, about RIT that I'd just like to add is it's not um, it's not just for structure fires. It's on any IDLH environment. The one thing that I can think of is um, we went to a chlorine leak um, a long while back. And uh, anytime I'm, I'm teaching RIT, I think about that and say to, to the students that um, in that scenario, sure, we're out in the open. We're in the middle of, of we're on a street. Um, there's tons of space. However, there's guys in there working, trying to contain this leak. And we know that it's an IDLH environment, even though it's, it's open. But there's this cloud of gas there that, that wants to kill you. Um, so think about RIT even on that type of scenario. Anytime that somebody's in some kind of IDLH environment, if a guy goes down in that chlorine leak, you got to have somebody ready to go and rescue him. Right, so it's not just a structure fire thing. Yeah, it's very good point. Very good point. You're right <clears throat> on any situation. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Even if they were climbing into a car and we were trying to cut someone out, and one of your guys, you know, again, stress gets to you everywhere when That's you're in right. the job, right? As much as you try and hold it back, you could be the guy in the tools, and all of a sudden, have some have some problems, medical emergency. Yeah. You need to be ready to, to deal with that. And again, is uh, do you have fresh hands? Mm -hmm. Is is seems to be the point we need to be making here. Like, make sure you've got fresh people. And uh, if you can, maybe do the same thing that we're talking about. Have the conversation with the the neighboring department, and and see what you can do about that. See if you can have that conversation and get something like that in place. Because by the sounds <coughs> of it, you know, RIT is one of the key essential essential things that we have um, on the fire ground that is much needed. It's a very valuable team. Um, I know for a while, obviously, we we didn't do it as much as maybe we should have. Not the training. We had the training, but we weren't designating guys specifically for that. Um, and sounds like we're, we're adjusting that, mm -hmm. which is great, which is great. Scott? Yeah, I think uh, even before we got the training, um, RIT was around, but I remember it was always a, and even in our training, which Spencer and uh, myself and one of the other officers went to uh, to take actual official RIT training, um, and we, the first thing the guy said to us was, you know, what what are RIT teams used to be, or what were RIT teams before, and it was usually the, either the really old, or the really new, it was never the, it was never the person you really wanted to come save you. It was always like, oh, put the rookie on it because he can just sit there on the tarp or put the old guy on it. And it's good to hear that, you know, not only us, but across the board, it's changing to putting the, almost like the most qualified person on. Because honestly, do you want, you know, the person's coming to save your life. They're, they're, they're essentially like the, the SWAT team of the fire guy, you know, the fire round. So you don't want to have the brand new guy on it. You don't want to have the, the guy who's probably going to have his own heart attack coming to get you on it. Um, so I think you, yeah, we have to, you know, have those talks and have that, and and I think that goes back to that regional RIT crew, because if it's if it's sort of a I don't want to say a handpicked team, but it almost would be, you know, if people want to put in for it, just by volunteering a second time because you've already volunteered once being a firefighter, and then you volunteer again to be put on the regional RIT team, um, that level of competency should be going up, and you know, if we're training fairly regular. Um, at least we would know what sort of level of competency we'd be getting from the red team. That makes sense. That makes sense. I guess, again, it comes back to that, making sure that everyone's on the same page and uh, training together mm -hmm. and making sure these things are done regularly. Spence? Another thing that I wanted to bring up is um, a lot of people are going to start to think, well, 
you know, we don't have any kind of writ um, scenarios, any writ incidents. They can't think back. I've been on the department 850 years, and we've never had a firefighter down incident. Uh, but you got to remember, you got to think about, um, you, you still have to keep that fresh in your training and uh, fresh in your cycle because you really have to train the difficult, dangerous things that you never do. Right? I'm, uh, now, I'm not going to say you shouldn't train grass fires, but around here we do a lot of grass fires, and everyone is a, a learnable, a training scenario. We still train grass fires, um, but we can't let up training the things that we don't do because when the shit hits a fan, um, who knows? It, it may not have happened in 850 years, but it may be tomorrow. So we really have to train the dangerous things that you don't do. Mm-hmm. And I think on a on another note of that as well, it comes back to that speak up. Even if you've had writ training and you do not feel confident enough to go in and be that person, you need to make that very clear. Or if you're having any kind of doubts that you're having issues, you again need to make that very clear. Because mm-hmm. otherwise it could potentially be two people that are dying and then you get in there and then you're having a situation or you're unable to help and then you have to go out and you've just wasted valuable time for somebody else that could have been in there doing the same thing. So no one's going to shout at you, yell at you, you know, we understand, but just make it very clear of, of whether or not this is something for you, which is kind of like what Scott's saying, you know, if this was a team of people, it would be probably hand-picked mm-hmm. yeah. yeah yeah scott you got anything else to add uh i just wanted to talk I, there's one thing that we've recently added into the rip bag and that was a tourniquet oh. and i know it's gonna open a whole other can um, the only reason why i'm <laughs> bringing it up right now is because because uh, again today in the tra- other training i'm doing right now um we just had our we just had our tourniquet talk um and I did a little demo today for for the people here um, that I think I've done with our guys, but I, I can't remember when it was. It might have been a while ago. And just showing what specific amounts of blood look like. Um, so basically, what I did today is, uh, you know, and it's not was this isn't my idea. This isn't me being awesome. This is me, you know, doing research and stuff. Um, but what I did was I took five one liter bottles of. Liquid and I like water, and I dyed them all. I dyed them red, just to give a little bit of a reference. Um, now, obviously, blood is thicker than water, but it still gives it that frame of mind when it gets dumped out. And so, what I did is I actually I started the guys off. I asked them how much blood is in the human body, and you know, it was five liters ish. You know, every, you know, smaller people have less, bigger people have slightly more, but you know, on average, it's five liters. So what I actually did, I, I took that and I, I dumped out a half a liter on the ground. And I said, well, is that a lot of blood? And if you dump a half a liter of liquid on the ground, I mean, you probably know it's spilling something on the ground. That's, that's, you know, like a cup of water on the ground looks like a lot. So half a liter looks like a lot of, a lot of blood. But when you get a, um, a blood transfusion, when you're giving blood at a blood bank, they take about a pint. And a pint is about a half a liter. So, and when you get that pint taken away, it's it's not, uh, you know, you don't die, you don't pass out, you just, you know, you get a little euphoric and you, and you need a cookie um, <laughs> and maybe some juice. I need a cookie now. And you get a little, yeah. you need a little sticker that says you get blood. <laughs> and then moving forward from that, it's, you know, uh, once you get to about a liter and a half of blood, it's when you start getting tunnel vision no longer really care for yourself and then once you're bound down down about two liters of blood that's when um you can get into um decompensated shock where it's going to be very difficult to bring you back because you would probably lose consciousness um and you'd need to be rushed to a hospital obviously so we discussed the tourniquets obviously today um and talked about some different tourniquet usage now on the fire ground tourniquets weren't traditionally used because it was never really thought of as something that was necessarily needed because usually the medics are nearby, right? So like a car accident, you know, normally the ambulance is there with us. But on a writ scenario, if that building was to collapse or something was to, you know, fall on this person and, and suddenly cut them open, like maybe your leg went through a piece of rebar, 
when you're stuck in this environment where paramedics can't go because they're not they don't have the SCBA, they don't know how to use the SCBA. The guys are trying to cut you out. It could take several minutes. So why not throw a couple of tourniquets in a rip bag and you know do some basic training on them? I mean they're they're really simple to use. Um, we do some training on them, and I think the training we do on them is fine. They, you know we we discuss it a little bit. Um, we show them how to put them on. Um, basically, tighten them down, lock them down with the windlass, and you're fine. Um, you know that's essentially all you need. You don't have to worry about taking them off. You don't have to worry about you know limb lossage and all that stuff. I mean it's been proven over years of war fighting in Afghanistan that people's legs just don't fall off from tourniquet usage. So I think that's another important piece that we've started adding into our rib bag is that is those tourniquets. That's, uh, that's all I have to say. Yeah, that's that's really valid. I know that you're a, a massive advocate of them, and you've explained many times to to all of us the the great uses um, and the the amount of times that they could have saved lives if they were just in somebody's pocket, just mm-hmm. as a regular piece of of gear, right? So yeah, no, very very valid. <laughs> Spence, you got some that. To expand on that a little bit. Um... One of the the main causes of a mayday of a firefighter down situation is we've touched on it, um, like a cardiac incident, because uh, maybe some of us, like myself, aren't in the best of shape, um, and we start from zero and go to a hundred, start working really hard, um, and it's just a fact of life that that's not really good for our heart. Um, so we got to think about what happens after the the mayday, after the writ, um, and after the after effects. Um, what do you do next? Like, yay, we've brought this guy from um, the ideal H environment, um, and we got him outside. Now he's lying on the ground. But wait a second, he's still in trouble. Mm-hmm. So um, one of the things we have to do is quickly get um, fast, effective CPR and hopefully AED on that guy that's having the cardiac incident. Um, and one of the things that we've done in our RIT training is to just fall back to that because um, that's kind of like the basic building blocks of RIT is building on um, the cardiac incident happening within our structure fire. Let's say that's the basics because mm-hmm. we can what if, oh, well, this guy has a collapse. What if this guy fell through a floor? What if whatever? Um, but the basic building blocks we've always discussed is, uh, is the cardiac incident. Um, so that takes some extra uh, planning and work once we've freed this person, this patient, from the ideation environment, structure fire, whatever it may be, um, we've got a really cool um, system down pat to get the guy or the, the patient out of their turnout gear. Uh, obviously, be wearing this SCBA, and it's you guys have all seen it, um, holding the SCBA between uh, a firefighter's legs and starting CPR right away because you have that stable platform to start with. And then we work all together to get the patient out of his turnout gear, out of his SCBA, really fast and smooth. But the point that I'm trying to drive home here is that cardiac patient needs fast, effective CPR, right? So we have to we have to not stop at the doorway once we get him outside of the ideal age environment. What's next? Like Scott was saying with the tourniquet, um, if we've got to stop the blood, we'll use a tourniquet. If we've got to start the heart... We got a CPR really fast, right? Yeah. Ash. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that that really brings home where all the manpower comes in. Uh, it takes X amount of firefighters to get them out the door, but how many more once they're out the door? Because again, it'd be great to have some more fresh hands. Like that's why all non-essential work stops. Because once you're out the door, I mean, now it's the the rescues happen now. The, there's more work. I mean, all all of that revival or whatever you you can do. Um, I mean, there's another group of four or five hands that have to come in there. Um, do you want the guy that just pulled this guy all the way out? Um, you know, there's going to be a group of three or four of them that just work their asses off getting them out out the door. It's great to, you know, maybe not pass off, but to have that extra multiple sets of hands. Um, and it goes from the three man, four man six eight man team to it takes a whole department to fully finish off a writ call once they're out the door yeah and then hope that you have ambulance close close by as well which would be ideal 
One of the one of the things that I recently picked up from our last writ session was a a, uh, a tip from from Warren, and Warren is one of our paramedics, kind of paramedic firefighter guys, and uh, he he just he was saying about that you keep doing chest compressions, like mm-hmm. you just don't stop, and it used to be the case of you you go and you breathe, and you go and one two three to whatever, and you breathe. And now it's not that. It's whatever you do, do not stop chest compressions. And he made it extremely clear that that was one of the key priorities of whoever was doing chest compressions does not stop. And everybody is working around his or her call. That person doing chest compressions is the person controlling the motion of everybody else trying to help that one person to make sure that everything is within sync so that that person can continue doing their job of keeping that person potentially breathing and obviously alive. Right. Very, very big thing that I learned. I, I thought it was, it was a good one. Mm-hmm. For sure. Uh, just on that CPR, um, for those that don't know, it's called Firefighter Down CPR. There's a whole uh, website on it, I believe. Um, so it, it shows you the steps, it shows you videos of people doing it. Um, I think it's somewhere developed, somewhere in Europe, was originally when it came out. Um, and then we've adopted it because it's pretty awesome. Uh, and, it, and not only the CPR is important, it's also getting that access for the AED. Because uh, uh, early access to an AED combined with some CPR is what saves lives. For sure. Absolutely. Gentlemen, thank you very much for your time. Mr. Spence. Thank you. Ash. Thank you. Scott, thanks for, uh, thanks for calling in. Gentlemen. Yeah, no problem. Thanks again. Welcome, listener, first time caller. <laughs> <laughs> the end of everyone. <laughs>